and thanks for joining us. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today our guest is Phil Johnson. He is the founder, master of Business Leadership Incorporated. In just a moment, Phil is going to be with us and talk a little bit about what he what it is that he does there and emotional intelligence and how we can all use that to help us in many ways and especially in business. Always like to um, encourage you to reach out and especially if you'd like to be a guest or know someone that would make an excellent guest who's using business as a force for good. Can reach us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. We'll be right back with Phil Johnson. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Daniel Hogan is in the studio, and today our guest is Phil Johnson, and he's the founder of Master of Business Leadership Incorporated. Hi there, Phil. Hi, Carol. Great to be on your show. Thank you. Thanks for being our guest. And can you give our listeners an introduction? What is it that you do there at Master of Business Leadership Incorporated? For the last 21 years, I've been working as an executive coach, helping uh, executives and organizations around the world uh, get better results by developing their emotional intelligence. And, you know, we've talked on this subject before here on the program. You know, many of us are familiar, but some of us may not be. Can you define what exactly is emotional intelligence and why is it important? Yeah, it's emotional intel. Emotional intelligence is uh, developed by what we do, not what we think, and it's it's different from intellectual intelligence in that it's an experiential process. So, by developing our emotional intelligence, uh, it multiplies the effectiveness or the results we're getting, based primarily on our ability to do intellectual labor, and it's. Uh, increasingly important uh, for both individuals and organizations because we're in a time of accelerating change. And uh, that's going to create increasing challenges for us that the development of our emotional intelligence will help to address. Can you give us a, a for example, like a way that maybe you've helped someone use their personal emotional intelligence in their business that resulted in a positive outcome or positive change. I guess, you know, bottom line, it sounds like um, we're aiming for improvements. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, um, the process of developing emotional intelligence, I've worked with individuals and organizations to create higher levels of engagement, both internally within the organization and, and from their customers. And that's resulted in not only higher levels of engagement and trust, but also uh, increased revenue and uh, career advancement. There's many examples of that. Uh, Can you give us one? One sales executive in San Diego, he was able to increase his organization's uh, revenue from average deal sizes of 5 to $10 million to over 
$60 million. He tripled his uh, personal income. So it had uh, a positive effect both on his customers and the people he works with and his own personal career. Well, we're we're going to delve into that a little bit more. I guess what I'm hoping that we can kind of expose and show to our listeners here is examples of not just success, but examples of behaviors that would be considered highly emotionally intelligent. Do you have some tidbits for us about that? Uh, sure. An example is um, when we listen to other people, we often don't hear them. And part of the reason for that is that our our walls can tend to go up if we feel threatened in any way. Uh, we tend to become maybe more resistive, judgmental, or attached to outcome. So one of the uh, one of the habits I uh, uh, ask people to practice that I'm working with is to become a more authentic leader. Or sorry, a more authentic listener. And the way to do that is to not take things personally. And what I mean by that is that how somebody feels about you, whether they like you or whether they don't like you is a reflection of what's going on inside of them and and not you. So if we're allowing how other people feel about us to determine how we feel about ourselves, we're really giving away our power, our energy to other people to determine how we should feel about ourselves. So that doesn't create positive outcomes. So becoming more emotionally intelligent about how we listen enables us to create better results. So if how I determine how I feel about myself, for instance, is based on how somebody else feels about me, I'm actually giving away my power to them to determine that. So we want to practice allowing people to feel what they feel, but recognize that whether they like us or whether they don't, that's simply a reflection of what's going on inside of them. And that's not something we need to take on for ourselves. Mm. That makes sense? Yes, it does. That That's making much more sense. And I appreciate that. So as always, <laughs> we'd like to know, Phil, how you got into this line of work. I would imagine that there were some events in your past, maybe that brought the, all of this to your attention and inspired you to work in this field. Yeah, um, great question. Thanks for asking it, Carol. I was uh, born with dyslexia. It, this was back, I'm 60, I just turned 68, so uh, that was, it was a while ago. Um, and back Time in flies. those days, <laughs> yes, yeah. um, there was no such thing as dyslexia in those days or um, ADD or ADHD. It's, um, and it forced me to uh, do what I now refer to as a lot of emotional labor, and that helped me to get greater awareness about what was going on inside of me and also other people. And I, and I share a lot of those insights and tools in, in my coaching. And actually, the, the bigger catalyst was the death of my mother in, uh, in December of 1967. Uh, in January 1968, I decided I, uh, I wanted to do this work. And I've really been on this path for the last 54 years. And I took a short detour into the semiconductor industry for 20 years along the way. And I finished my career in that industry as a, as an executive. But 
what I do now really comes full circle with a promise I made to myself uh, 54 years ago. What was that pro- promise? And, you know, I I have family members with dyslexia and kind of a, a similar situation that, um, mm-hmm. you know, there was no testing, there was no real diagnosis. So I'm just wondering also how that must have impacted you growing up. Yeah, I failed grade three and I failed grade five and was labeled a slow learner. And my parents, my parents were born around the turn of the 20th century and went as far as grade eight in school. And uh, my dad was a factory worker who never made more than $5 an hour. So we, uh, I had two older brothers and uh, we lived in about a 900 square foot wartime bungalow. So there were, there were lots of challenges in every area. But it was really um, the death of my mother. She had developed cancer and um, actually died uh, two days after my 14th birthday. And uh, one month later, I made a decision that was to change the trajectory of my life. And that decision was that I was going to see what was on the other side of the hill and come back and help the kids that are my friends that had already given up on life. So that year, I became an A student. And I was an A student throughout the rest of high school and, and university. And I went on to get a BCom and most of an MBA and studied electrical engineering for five years, beginning a career in the semiconductor industry. And as I left that industry, I um, we've generated over a billion dollars in revenue. And at one point, I was traveling about 60,000 miles a year throughout North America and the Pacific Rim. So I'd accomplished more than I'd, or anyone else for that matter, ever thought I would but I'd forgotten along the way why I was doing it. And then in 1990, uh, uh, I actually remembered why I was doing it. And I started focusing on developing a process that, I, that I've been using for the last uh, 21 years to help other individuals and organizations uh, get better results. Now, if you're not familiar with dyslexia or a little bit about it, um, you might not realize that, you know, it's thought that Einstein, Edison, maybe even had dyslexia. So um, I always like to think it's um, many, many folks with dyslexia are very gifted, but this is, it's hard to demonstrate because reading is a difficulty. Is that what you experienced, Phil? Just had a real yeah, hard time it's a, reading. Yeah, it's a and neurological reading. disorder, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a brain. Um, so I have difficulty reading, and uh, I tend to invert uh, words and numbers in my mind. And it also affects my hearing. Um, so there's lots of uh, lots of challenges there, but it's it's the um, it helped me to do the to compensate by developing my emotional intelligence think of it this way it's like a blind person that develops great hearing uh, to compensate so because my brain doesn't work the way most people's brains work um, it forced me to do a lot of emotional labor which as it turns out now um, was actually uh, I look at my dyslexia now as a as a gift rather than a rather than a problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're talking about emotion, additional emotional labor that obviously led to some great success in your life, 
can you talk about that a little bit more? How did you meet these challenges with emotional intelligence that you kind of, it was self-taught, it sounds. Lots of times uh, when I was in grade school, uh, the back of my shirt would be soaked with sweat, and I rarely made eye contact with the teachers, and I dreaded being asked a question. Um, so I, I really had to rely more on my intuition rather than my intellectual ability. And but the the, the real turning point for me was uh, was the death of my mother, and that really motivated me to generate a life of meaning. And that's what I've been doing by, by trying to, uh, to help other people. And rather than sitting there in class, uh, sweating at the thought of being called upon, what did you do instead? This is no small accomplishment for a, a youngster facing oh, I, um, <laughs> all that you yeah, did. I became, a, I became a super overachiever. I uh, worked very hard. What folks now refer to as grit. I I, I worked very hard. I actually started working when I was nine years old, um, pulling loose copper out of the back of factory dumpsters and selling it for five cents a pound. That was my allowance. By the time I was 12, I was working in a produce factory loading boxcars with 50-pound crates of corn. And I also had a part-time job uh, as a caddy at a local golf course. So I um, I became very motivated in every area of my life to to achieve better results. Mm. And, that, and that motivation caused me to leave my comfort zone on a regular basis and move through the anxiety that that, that created. Mm. And that's actually, um, that's, a, that's a challenge that we're all, facing today because we're we're at at a time of accelerating and rapid change and we've got a 500 million year old brain that doesn't like change so there's significant both biological and sociological resistance that we have to change Uh, so it's really um, we're being challenged to develop our emotional intelligence to deal with the, the fear that change creates in us mm. at more and more organizations, uh, for instance, are hiring, promoting, and developing emotional intelligence. We're going to speak just a little bit more about this and um, get some helpful hints from Phil. This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. In just a moment, we'll be back. Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today we're speaking with Phil Johnson, and we're just talking about emotional intelligence and how we might be able to kind of foster that within ourselves. Phil, can you speak more on this? What is your process, and how do we infuse more emotional intelligence into our our minds, our our lives, our companies? Um. 
Yeah, there's a um, there's a methodology for developing emotional intelligence within individuals, and there's a separate methodology that regarding organizational change. <clears throat> but uh, em- emotional intelligence focuses on what you do, not what you think. It focuses on your actions, and actually, what you do will change what you think. Uh, so it's um, it's really a process of learning to lower our walls and become less resistive, less judgmental, and less attached to outcome, which actually helps us to develop our emotional intelligence. It also helps us to become more inspirational leaders and raise our level of consciousness. See, we're only conscious about 3 to 5% of the time. The rest of the time, we're relying on our, our unconscious habits to determine our behaviors and our results. So if we want better results than we're currently getting, we need to develop new habits that raise our level of consciousness. And that journey to developing new habits are actually called neural network pathways in our brain. And we can do that at any age. It's called brain plasticity or or neurogenesis. Um, That process of leaving our comfort zone to develop new habits is how we develop our emotional intelligence. That's called the emotional labor as opposed to intellectual labor, which we're well familiar with. Mm-hmm. This is sounding a little bit like, um, you know, Bren Brown, for example, using our own vulnerabilities to make us stronger. I mean, it seems like a bit of a contradiction, but. Is there meditation involved? I mean, you you mentioned becoming more conscious, and that's something that I hear a lot about, kind of related to meditation. How how do we become more conscious? And and what the heck is yeah, that, after be, all? <laughs> becoming more vulnerable, meaning lowering our walls and not giving away our energy, isn't weakness. It actually requires strength. And um, so Bernays... And he's correct about that. Our, le- our level of results, the, re- the results we achieve are a reflection of our current level of consciousness. In order for us to achieve better results than we're currently getting, we need to raise our level of consciousness. So anxiety can either force us to go into one of two directions. It can either cause us to retreat into our comfort zone so that we, we become more resistive, more judgmental, more attached to outcome, and less conscious, or it can motivate us to move out of our comfort zone toward the vision of our desired result. And that journey, that emotional labor journey, is how we become less resistive, less judgmental, and less attached to outcome. Another word for this that's been used for thousands of words, thousands of years, is called enlightenment. As we learn to lower our walls, we're moving towards enlightenment. Hmm. There's another word for you. What do you mean by enlightenment? These are these are hard things for us to really grasp onto. Um, yep. It's the important there's words. Old, there's but... an old Zen saying, before enlightenment, chop wouldn't carry water. After enlightenment, chop wouldn't carry water. What that means is that it's not what you do, it's how you do what you do. The level of awareness, the level of consciousness, the level of 
presence you have, you demonstrate in whatever it is you're doing. And that's really, that's really the objective here. It's to become more present, more focused on whatever we're doing. See, the present moment is all that exists. The past doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. The future will never exist because when the future simply becomes the present moment. And the present moment is something we share with everybody on the planet. It's the only time when we can take an action to generate a result. We can't, we can't do that in the past. We can't do that in the future. So the more conscious we become, the more present we become in this moment. And that enables our creativity, our genius to surface. So we can get dramatically better results by focusing on what we're doing now. So it's not about, not about what you do. It's about how you do what you do, the degree of presence you demonstrate in the moment, Mm -hmm. in this moment. Yeah. So kind of moving away from the lower centers of the brain and that kind of knee jerk reaction response that we find ourselves in when we are kind of worked up or have high adrenaline, whatever it sounds like, and reacting from a place or acting from a place of desired outcomes. Am, am I getting this right, Phil? Yeah. Well, actually what happens, I'll just get a little, I'll delve into this a little bit for your listeners. Whenever we take an action that moves us outside of our comfort zone, there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is part of our old lizard brain. And for the last 500 million years, it's been trying to keep us safe and alive by making sure we never leave the safety of our cave or our comfort zone. And if we do, it tries to force us back by secreting a hormone into our bloodstream called cortisol. And that causes our the executive center, our prefrontal cortex of our brain to shut off. And we typically go into some type of fight, flight, or freeze mode that psychologists refer to as an amygdala hijack. And so some people tend to, when they get scared, they tend to lash out. Some people run away. Some people freeze like a deer in the headlights. But when that happens in conflict situations, people die. And when it happens in business or personal situations, relationships die. We burn trust. So in a sense, the development of emotional intelligence is like Navy SEAL training for our emotions. And what that means is that um, we can step out of our comfort zone and move through the anxiety that that creates in us without losing our consciousness of the present moment. Mm. And let's talk about your process. Um, Say an executive comes to you and how do you get them from A to B? How do you get them into a space of more consciousness? That's another great question. Um, The first thing I do is I ask them what they want. You see, when somebody tells you what they want, they're also telling you what they don't have. And the bigger the gap between where they are versus where they want to be, the more motivated they are to look for a solution to close that gap. So really, that motivation is essential to doing the emotional labor that change requires. And think of it, the journey to developing emotional intelligence, the ROI 
is never ending. Uh, an analogy I like to use is a penny doubling. If you take a penny and you double it every day for 31 days, day one, you've got a penny, day two, you've got two pennies, day 31, you've got $10.7 million, day 32, you've got more. But the point is, this isn't about money. The point is that it doesn't take any more effort to go from day 30 to day 31 than it did to go from day one to day two. But it's a journey. It's a building process. So in the beginning of the journey, it looks like you're doing a lot of work, a lot of emotional labor for not much visible result. And that's true because you don't know what you don't know. But later on, it looks like you're doing a little work for a large visible result. So that the the ROI in developing your emotional labor, sorry, your emotional intelligence, keeps getting greater and greater and greater and greater as does your level of consciousness and your ability to be an inspirational leader uh, to the people around you. Mm-hmm. Are there exercises like um, I, I mentioned before meditation? No. Meditation is one process of slowing our brain down so that we can be more present. And that is, that's a good example. That's a, that's a tool that's a micro skill uh, that we can use in developing our emotional intelligence. And other habits are part of uh, uh, the coaching process that I, I've developed along the way. Mm-hmm. Are there any partners, um, other companies, uh, people within your company itself um, that you'd like to give a, a shout out to that... Um, helps you help folks? Um, Well, I've been uh, doing this on my own for the last uh, 21 years. And certainly there's a lot of uh, folks that have helped me in getting the message out. Working within your company or um, helping you find clients, I would imagine. We've got got about a minute left, so... Yeah, can you also tell our listeners um, how they might find you? Yeah, uh, the, the best way to uh, to get in contact with me or find me is on LinkedIn. I have quite a presence there, just Phil Johnson. And if they're interested, um, there's a link to my calendar. If they'd like to meet in person and and have a chat, I'd be I'd be happy to. And you know, I feel like we could uh, go on for at least another hour, (laughs) Phil, but um, we've come to the end of the show for today. And as usual, thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Phil, for being our guest. And uh, Thank you. mm -hmm. We shall see you next week. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.
Passing, but on the other side. 